Yeah. Okay, yeah. terrific. Let me share my, go to full screen. Is that one single screen? Yes, it is. Excellent, thank you. Thank you and I apologize for the um, uh, disconnect with the internet. Uh, I, I thought on a Saturday it would be much better, but clearly it's not. <laughs> so let me move this off my screen. Okay, so uh, today I'd uh, like to talk to you about our Venus flagship mission concept, uh, which is a planetary decadal sur uh, survey study. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the decadal survey, um, what we do in both planetary earth science astrophysics is every 10 years we look at the science and what the new science is and come up with a plan that NASA follows. And so um, in preparation for this decadal survey, which is underway right now, uh, we're actually looking, we, they looked at about 10 or 11 different concepts. And um, this was one of them. Uh, so my co-conspirators are, are Marty Gilmore from Wesleyan University. And uh, the study was actually done at Goddard. Even though I'm at J JPL, uh, the study was done at Goddard with help from JPL, as well as Ames and uh, Langley. Okay, let's make sure these things advance here. Okay, are we advancing? Oops, yeah, we are. Okay, good. So the um, flagship uh, concept was uh, studied by a lot of people. So this was started about um, a year and a half ago and the study was October, let's see, must've been October 19, uh, 2019 we started and wound up last July. <clears throat> the study team was quite extensive. Uh, we had great um, number of people on the team. And the main technical team then, as I said, was at Goddard. And we used their MDL team, which is like the JPL Team X, which is the uh, uh, concurrent engineering team at Goddard. We used them for two whole weeks. And it was the first time they had ever done um, remote study session because this was right in the beginning of the uh, pandemic so we um we would start i think the end of march and beginning of april and did a two mdl weeks and that was great um the number of people in the community that helped was enormous and there's a list right there that's probably not everybody because everyone that belonged to the venus assessment group participated one way or another. <clears throat> the uh, team itself met a couple of times a week and uh, fortunately we uh, were at Goddard for two or three days in February last year. So about a year ago we were at Goddard and that was terrific because at least we got to meet people and, and be able to do the study, uh, at least having some faces associated with names. So why would we want to go to Venus? Uh, Venus is, um, this is an image from the Mariner 10 uh, in 1974, but it's the hottest planet that we know. It's 450 degrees centigrade on the surface. There's 90 bar of atmosphere, mainly CO2. And it's um, 
often known as Earth's evil twin. It's about the same size as, uh, as, as the Earth. And of course, it's the second rock from the sun. So there's a lot of reasons that we want to look at it, uh, primarily to understand our own uh, planet a little better, because is this something that's happened as a result of uh, you know, a climate warming events, or is this um, just inherent in the way that Venus is, um, is a planet? Uh, notably, it actually doesn't have a moon either. And some, some folks actually think that that actually has some uh, bearing on the problems. The other reason that we're interested is as we find these exoplanets, uh, it turns out that Venus is very representative of a lot of, of what we see in exoplanets. And in fact, as it's in our planetary system, it's the closest to, to Earth. Uh, Venus is the only exoplanet we will ever touch, as Steve Kane, who was on our team, says. And I think that that is another reason it's of particular interest. So there's been many missions to... Um, to uh, Venus. Years and years ago, the um, Russians landed several times, uh, no longer than a couple of hours each time. They also had uh, Vega balloons that went around in the atmosphere. And so there's a lot of, um, of past data on the surface, but nobody has, uh, has been on the surface since the, the time the Russians uh, did their experiments. Right now, uh, we do have Venus Express and Akatsky, Akatsky, and, um, but in the past, we've had Magellan. So the uh, NASA missions right now are non-existent, but the, the Magellan in the past gave us this iconic image of, of one of the um, volcanoes on, uh, of Venus called Matt Mons and imaged the surface with radar. And that was phenomenally useful and still is useful to this day. Uh, Venus Express and Akatsky are primarily at, um, atmospheric measurements and uh, with dynamics and composition uh, mo mostly um, done. So those are more atmospheric. And again, for the exoplanets, this is all extremely important. Right now we do have, as I said, we've got a Katsky, uh, but there are uh, a flybys of Venus that are happening. So we have a, a NASA, so NASA's Parker Solar Probe, uh, and that'll eventually get within 15, 17, 5, 17 miles uh, above the surface of Venus. And we've, there's this wonderful image that uh, the ESA Solar Orbiter flyby took of Venus as they flew by in, the, in uh, 2020. And you can see that image. What's nice about having multiple spacecrafts uh, from other countries there is that uh, Akatsuki and BepiColombo, which is a, v a, a Mercury mission in, uh, from ESA, will actually be looking at uh, data at the same time. So BepiColombo um, is gonna be flying by uh, Venus on its way to Mercury. It'll do a couple of uh, flybys. It's already done one, another one's coming up this summer. And, uh, but Akatsuki will uh, be much further away in its uh, very extended orbit 
and uh, we'll be able to take more global data while Bepi Colombo is going to go close in and uh, get some uh, space physics information there. Mainly um, a little bit of Imogen, but mostly it'll be space physics. Um, the types of data that we'll be getting will be uh, magnetometry data and fields and particles. So although NASA has a ton of uh, operating science uh, missions going on right now, uh, the one thing that's been missing is poor Venus has not had a mission uh, coming to look at the surface and look at the extent of the system uh, since um, the uh, early 80s. So it's time for Venus. Um, what I'll do is, uh, uh, by the way, I cannot see the chat. So if there's people asking questions, maybe we can just take them at the end simply because I can't see the chat at the same time as, uh, as sharing here. Um, the, um, I'll, I'll give you the, the key points right now, and then I'll explain how we did the, the study and, and what we did as a result of the, uh, of the trades. So the, uh, the study has ended up with key elements of design. Uh, we launched in 2031, and there'll be synergistic measurements. And that's, that's the whole point of a flagship mission is you want to be able to do multiple elements so that you can do extensive um, uh, understanding with lots of different instruments of different uh, aspects of the, of the uh, planet. And that was similar to, to what happened, for example, with Cassini when we, we started looking at um, uh, both Lander to, to Titan as well as, as looking at Cassini multiple instruments. So this, this ended up being an orbiter and two small sats. And uh, there was a lander. And we managed to improve the lander time frame. Uh, we just heard about our thermal analysis uh, folks uh, having, having the ability to look at things quickly. Uh, this is probably even too quick for them. Uh, the lifetime on the surface is about seven hours and uh, it'll be uh, an hour of measurement and descent. And uh, there's also uh, an aerobot that will fly within the clouds, which have um, sulfuric acid droplets uh, in the clouds. So we have to make sure that they're resistant to that. And we, we've been working on this for some time. So you can see the little diagram here where we're looking at the orbiter the variable altitude balloon and uh, the lander. Uh, it'll also have a long-lived lander component, which is, um, is going to last for much longer than 60 days. This is really a technology uh, study in that it's, uh, the, the information is going to uh, be pinged up, if you will, every time an orbiter flies by. Uh, for this particular study, we had to assume that there's no prior Venus missions, even though, and I don't mean missions such as uh, Magellan and, and the missions that are in the past, but I'm, I'm talking about the missions that are in play right now. I'll talk about them, but there's a couple of missions that are in, in competition in discovery right now. 
And uh, there's also a, an ESA mission uh, concept uh, named uh, Envision, which is, um, which is uh, looking at doing a, a, a medium mission uh, in their competition. And the Russians are also looking at that, uh, at another mission as well. And I'll talk a little bit about, the, about how all of this plays together. <clears throat> so what are the science goals? So the science goals are to understand the history of volatiles and uh, liquid water on Venus and determine if Venus has ever been habitable. So this is really a habitability um, mission. Uh, it's to figure out if there was really any time in the history that could be, uh, life could have existed in, in or above the surface of Venus. We want to understand the composition and climatological history of the surface of Venus and the present day couplings between the surface and the atmosphere with a very warm, the very hot surface of 450 centigrade. We've got a 90 bar of CO2 right above that. And so how does that surface uh, play? And then we want to understand the geological history of Venus and whether Venus is active today. There are signs and there are uh, papers out where we have uh, decided that there is probably active volcanoes on Venus, but we need to, to, to really make sure that that's the case. And, and how, how recent is recent, whether it's active today or whether it's active in the fairly recent past. <clears throat> So you can see the science objectives, uh, determine if Venus once hosted liquid water at the surface, identify and characterize the origins of the volatiles today, um, and place constraints on whether there's habitable environments in Venus. <clears throat> you can read the rest of them. One of the things that, um, that you'll see on the right hand is just, Im just impressions. They're not really all of the processes to be studied. Uh, but those are the types of processes and the um, level to which we can do uh, the, the different uh, examinations. So we'll be looking at things from the mantle and coal crust all the way through to escape to space. So it looks at Venus as a system. And this is really uh, an important aspect of the uh, flagship mission. And, and being a flagship, we can look at the system and not just one aspect of it. Uh, alone. So this gives us a very good understanding of how all the different elements um, can, um, can interact. Uh, it also, this uh, mission <clears throat> uh, directly addresses all of these VEXAG goals and several objectives from the science plans. It informs uh, planetary science division objectives. It also informs heliophysics and astrophysics. So it really cuts across all of uh, science mission directorate at headquarters. The study was done in a fairly straightforward way. We looked at science requirements, uh, such as uh, developing science traceability matrices so this, this extent is a very extensive, this is just one example row <coughs> of the uh, science traceability matrix. And uh, we, 
we spent a fair bit of time preparing this, making sure that we understood the, the needs and the performance requirements and the functional requirements. Uh, but we did set up two things. So we, the concept was really derived from these three major science goals. But not only that, we actually looked at two cost-driven driven requirements early on. Uh, one was to launch all the elements on a single rocket. Now, you may think that that's sort of a, a strange thing to say, but the last uh, flagship mission study, which was the last decade, then actually was, had their um, launch in two rockets, and we did not want to do that. We wanted to make sure that um, we went on one rocket, and of course, we've got bigger rockets available now than they had uh, even a decade ago. So uh, I was looking at a single rocket launch, and the one thing that I really pushed on was making sure that we limit the G load for Venus entry. We can do higher Gs to get in. Getting to Venus is dynamically um, a difficult uh, entry. And so I wanted to make sure that we could use some of the instruments that we've built for Mars now and for other places that we could actually use them at, at Venus. And this proved to be very um, doable. People had not done it in the past. Some of the entry uh, Gs coming into Venus in past missions have been 150, 160 even, uh, Gs. And that of course puts limits on what you can do uh, as you uh, as, with the instruments. And we managed to accomplish both of these requirements. So what are the instruments that we picked? We picked quite a few instruments uh, for, um, for the lander, the aerobot, the orbit, and small sats. And some of them are duplicated. And it's not because, it's, it's just to get the system level. It, it's, it's not because um, we just wanted to take a look at something at, at, at various uh, levels for, for uh, duplication purposes but more to see the difference between what you see in an orbiter, for example, and a small sat. The categories of instruments that we ha had on, we're looking at aerosols, atmospheric uh, instruments, uh, looking at atmospheres, the atmospheric conditions, mineralogy and geology, magnetic fields and particles. And you can see on the land uh, we have uh, everything from a mass spectrometer with a tunable uh, laser spectrometer, which is similar to uh, what we used on um, Curiosity with SAM. Uh, it would be a, a similar type of instrument, but uh, developed for uh, a qualified, I should say, for, for Venus. Uh, we'd have an atmospheric structure suite to uh, look at the atmospheric conditions of pressure, temperature, and radiation. and uh, nephilometer. Then the mineralogy on the surface, we've, we actually did duplicate here. Um, we will uh, look at uh, imaging, so there'll be images, and we look at it on descent and on the ground. So there'll be a panoramic camera for the ground and an imager for the uh, descent. Um, there's a neutron gamma ray spectrometer to look below the surface, about 30 centimeters below the surface. Um, but the, the primary instruments for looking at the geology would be the X-ray diffractometer and the X-ray fluorescence spectrometer, which would, which would uh, give us information. And to do those, um, 
to do those two experiments and use those instruments, we need to bring samples into the, um, to the pressure vessel. And so we, this is then complemented by a Raman Libs instrument where you can do distance um, measurements uh, with a laser and get um, remote sensing. Now this was done on, on Mars. Uh, we did it with, um, I think it's called SuperCam on, uh, on uh, the last uh, mission. I think it's on um, one of the rovers recently, it could be on Perseverance, has a SuperCam. And they've, they've had uh, a prior one uh, at, at Mars too. So we know we can do this on Mars. There is still some question whether we can do it on the surface with the pressure of, uh, of Venus. Uh, and we'll see how that, that pans out. And then, as I said, this is the long-lived lander uh, that has um, elements to look at the, uh, at the atmosphere. On the aerobot, we'd have an aerosol mass spectrometer uh, to look at the particles uh, that fly in the clouds, uh, whether it's um, particles of sulfuric acid or whether it actually has a content of um, volcanic activity, for example, uh, that result from volcanic activity, activity in the clouds. A fluorometric microscope, which would be looking for signs of life. Again, a MET suite uh, to look at the conditions within the clouds, um, a magnetometer, and a visible imager. So the, uh, the purpose of the MET suite is twofold. One is to look at the metro meteorological conditions within the clouds, but it also has a pressure measuring device, and that actually will look at the infrasound to look at this, the, the surface and record any um, volcanic activity on the surface. And so this is actually looking below the surface as well, and we'll be able to get some condition, some information about uh, the, the deep subsurface. On the orbiter, we'd have a synthetic aperture radar. Uh, the radar itself, uh, is, you could say this is a radar mission, but it's not. The radar here is actually being used more like a, a camera would be on, um, on, on Mars, because of the very thick atmosphere, you can't use a camera. And so you wanna use radar as, as your, as your uh, camera in to look, at the, uh, look down into the surface. There'd be an, a near IR imager, and this would actually give us information about emissivity on the surface. And, and at the wavelengths that we've chosen, we can see through the clouds and through the atmosphere. Submillimeter spectrometer to look at the uh, at the uh, um, species within around 150, 160 kilometers, and then you can see the rest: mag magnetometer, neutral mass spec, and the um, the ion electrostatic analyzer and the electric uh, electron analyzer. The small sats have mostly fields and particles uh, measure measuring devices on them, and again. The purpose here is to look at uh, what comes off of the Venus surface and the Venus atmosphere and what is escaping to the solar, solar wind. So the second part of, of what we did as we were going along with developing the instrumentation 
was of course do the system trades. Uh, and most of you I'm sure are very familiar with system trades, but we did a ton of system trades. And uh, as you can see, we, uh, we highlighted the ones that, I've highlighted the ones here that, that uh, lowered the complexity and the cost. Um, and these are the elements we chose. Uh, we also did trades for each of the platforms and I'm not going to go into these um, these trades, but you can see that it was pretty thorough, and we spent a lot of time working a lot of these trades. Whoops. And this is how we uh, ended up with the VFM, uh, the Venus flagship mission platforms. Uh, the uh, Falcon 9 was the rocket, uh, which was uh, a Falcon 9 heavy expendable with a five meter fairing. And as you can see, everything fits in pretty well. Um, the orbiter was a, a, also the carrier space vehicle for uh, the lander and the aerobot. And uh, the small sat aerobots, as I said, were both science uh, vehicles, but they ended up really being critical for the communication. And so they, uh, they, they doing double duty and the variable altitude balloon uh, was, uh, was, was key to looking at a range between 52 kilometers and about um, 62 kilometers. The mission timeline was such that uh, we launched in 2031. After the launch, immediately the small sats were deployed and they went on their merry way to Venus and got into final orbit around uh, uh, 8.34. The orbiter uh, went with the airbot and the lander. And, and the reason that we wanted to have the small sats get there ahead of time is they had to be the communication for uh, a lot of the landed elements and the airbot. So we wanted to make sure those were in place before we got there. So it turned out what we did with the orbiter <clears throat> was we actually did a flyby of Venus first and then went into uh, orbit. Deploying the aerobot on uh, November 34 and uh, the lander in May of uh, 2035. Uh, the mission then went into a final polar science orbit before uh, ending the nominal mission in 2038. So it was quite an extensive um, concept and uh, did a lot of science over many, many, many years. And I'll show you a little video. We had such a great teamwork in this. This is a little video that, uh, that Drew Jones at Goddard did. And uh, it's, it's, it shows all of the instruments and the mission concept. Let me see if I can get this working right. Let's hope the bandwidth here is good enough to show this.
And thanks to Drew for doing that. It, uh, he, this is what, one of these uh, people that just is a phenomenal um, a mechanical engineer that uh, just loved doing those videos. So he did us a nice little video for showing how, how the uh, spacecraft and the, all the spacecraft uh, platforms work together. One thing that we did discover uh, quite early on and we worked very hard on was this communication scenario. The communications at, at, at Venus are quite difficult because you have to have S-band uh, or UHF from the surface because the atmosphere is so thick that you can't really use X-band and KA-band. So you've got to have um, an S-band and um, UHF uh, on the uh, on the in, on the uh, platforms, it turned out that we do not have uh, temperature uh, available uh, S band uh, components for the communication for the long lived in situ uh, explorer. Such things don't exist. Um, but they did. They they believe they can do the UHF. So we um, we had the UHF going to the small sats. The um, Lander and the Aerobot both could do S-band and they could do S-band to both the small sats and to the orbiter. And of course the um, relay to earth for the small sats was gonna be X-band, but to the orbiter would be both X and KA-band. And so you can see we th this took some um, doing to get everybody in the right place at the right time, but um, it, it it also has pointed out to the community that this is something they need to pay attention for. Because in the past, when people have assumed they've only get a two hour uh, window for the, for the lander, nobody has spent a lot of time looking at the longer term communication strategy for when you're on the surface for seven or eight hours or even longer. And as the thermal uh, folks are working these issues, we're beginning to see even longer times possible on the surface of Venus. The small sats themselves, uh, as I said, were, were, were science primarily to understand the evolution of Venus's atmosphere and magnetosphere to measure the interaction with the solar wind. We're particularly interested in the oxygen loss, uh, of, you know, the, the ionic loss from uh, water. So this tells us what's happening to the water on, uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, they were elliptical orbits, um, but importantly, they were um, in solar cycle 26. So here's 2031, and you'll see it captures the, almost the entire solar cycle, which would be really a phenomenal uh, thing to do. So we, the data would be very, very useful for understanding both the solar wind plus the, uh, the interaction of the solar wind with the Venus uh, environment. And um, because of the lack of uh, Venus uh, in intrinsic um, uh, magnetic field, um, the solar wind sweeps a lot of the atmosphere away from, um, from Venus. So this is a very interesting set of, uh, of uh, measurements that would be made. The orbiter, uh, as I said is, is not a SAR, but we will be doing SAR and we will be mapping the, the surface in high resolution. 
uh, as well as looking at the uh, species on the surface using the emissivity uh, measurements. Uh, it also has a mass spec. This will fly around 300 kilometers altitude. And so we wanted to uh, make sure we understood, uh, again, in different altitudes, uh, the composition of the atmosphere. So we'll be looking at the escape to space at 300 kilometers we'll be looking, at around 150 we'll be looking, and then 60, 50, 60, and then all the way down to the surface. So there'll be the complete look at the atmosphere uh, in this particular concept. The uh, aerobot will do an entry, descent and float. It's not entry, descent and landing, it's entry, descent and float. And uh, it circumnavigates the um, Venus. It'll, it'll um, entry point will be on the day side, but it circumnavigates at night and all the way around and eventually ends up at the pole. We said 60 days, but in fact, there's no real lifetime um, on this. It could be as much as, as you like. The atmosphere, the um, atmosphere moves around, the winds around 50, 60 kilometers, around 200 miles an hour. I mean, they're substantial, but the relative um, motion with the balloons, of course, is much less. Uh, the uh, one thing to know is to make sure that uh, everything's um, um, can be um, protected from the droplets of sulfuric acid. And to that extent, uh, the balloon material has been looked at for some time at JPL and people know pretty well how to do that. Um, the question is making sure that the instruments are all protected. And so we had plans for, for ways of, uh, of managing to do that. The first circumnavigation would just be a single uh, altitude just to get a baseline of what happens around 55 uh, kilometers, 55, 56 kilometers. Um, later on, we'd go up and down. And the reason to start at around 55, 56 is that it's around 20 centigrade. It's very benign in terms of temperature. Um, it'll um, give us a good understanding of the convective clouds and the habitability at that level. And um, what you want to do then is go up and down and you can change um, the uh, altitude with the super pressure balloon internal to the zero pressure balloon, as you see on the right. So we can go up and down uh, as, as much as you like. And in 60 days, you would get about 12 circumnavigations from equator to the pole. And it, you know, it, there's no reason you couldn't keep going. We'd end up probably um, just not going many circumnavigations at the pole. The lander uh, will do the mineralogy, ge geochemistry and geomorphology, uh, uh, the morphology of Venus. And the terrain that we chose was a tessera terrain. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. It turns out that um, there are two major terrains on Venus. One, which is the plains, which is where the Russians are, uh, landed all of their landers. And, um, but we want to go to the Tessera because that's the oldest regions of uh, Venus and are likely to, to be um, much more interesting as a result. Um, we will ingest about three samples into the lander for elemental chemistry and mineralogy. Um, we'll do descent imaging as we 
uh, as we go down, but the descent image on the surface will image the drill site. And uh, the PAM cam has six filters with a rotating mirror. So it actually will rotate uh, at the top and you can see it's, this is the uh, PAM cam. As I said, we are also looking at doing the Raman libs uh, by many, uh, by analyzing many targets uh, outside. And um, the, the gamma ray spectrometer will look uh, over about 30 centimeter depth by about 50 centimeter over about an hour and a half. And then the long lived lander. But before we get to the surface, the lander will actually descend and we can measure the composition and the environment of the atmosphere uh, both on the surface as well as as we descend. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you can see to the right here, the exosphere, the thermosphere, upper stratosphere, lower stratosphere and troposphere. And we'll be able to uh, get all of the uh, imaging as we go through the, this whole region here. And we will of course be getting this from the orbiter and this from the small sats. So we'll be covering the entire uh, height uh, of the um, altitude of the atmosphere. As I said, we want to land in the Tessera. These are the oldest regions. The primary site is this west of the region here in the, the, one of the oldest test, Tessera regions. Uh, you can see the plains uh, in the blue color and the Tessera in the brown. And the reason, as I said, it's one of the most interesting um, places to go on the surface, because at the time of the Tessera crater age that's been determined is that it overlaps with the conditions that are favorable for DNA based life, as well as liquid water are present on the surface. So this is really key to why we want to go to that area. Earth, of course, has all of the uh, present day uh, conditions favorable to life. And, and Mars had, had it many, many years ago. It doesn't even have the tectonic activity anymore. And of course it doesn't have the, the liquid water on the surface uh, and not the conditions favorable for DNA life as we know it right now. But in the past, of course they did. And that's what we look at on Mars. But one of the things that's really tough about the Tessera is landing. Uh, they can have very um, high slopes. Um, they can be, cre not crevasses, but very deep valleys. So landing is a real key. We really have to do a good job at this landing. And you know, the ingestion then, you know, it depends on gravity for sample delivery. So you want to make sure that you're in a reasonable orientation. So we may have uneven surface and we may have surface materials, which are uh, pretty hard. So we spent a fair bit of time trying to figure out how to do, uh, to do the landing hazard avoidance and the uh, terrain relative navigation. Now we'll be doing terrain relative navigation with perseverance. So we know we can do that. And um, that's on, a, but that, that's on a, a, an, an almost atmosphere-less uh, body, you know, Mars is one-tenth uh, Earth atmosphere, and this is 90 bar of CO2 and water and sulfuric acid, as, um, sulfur species. So this is quite different. So the terrain relative navigation technology has to be 
changed for this particular environment. Uh, and then also the hazard detection and avoidance that we'd like to do uh, needs to be uh, better understood. So we would, we had LIDAR on the, this uh, to look at the uh, real-time processing of descent images. And then to, um, we use these fans, kind of like screws on a, on, a, on a submarine to relocate the lander to avoid any steep slopes we might do. And you know all of this will need uh, some some more work, but all of the, but the design closed and it was really um, it's it's a, it's a case of developing the technologies to the point that we can do it for this particular environment. As I said, the lander lasted on the surface for eight hours. The landing is here about an hour in after the descent imaging is done. Uh, you can see on the top line here the communication relay. So initially, the small sats during descent are what takes the data. The orbiter then will go by and get the majority uh, of the data of the, the imaging and the high data uh, bandwidth and high data rate uh, instruments. And then the small sats will pick up again uh, afterwards. But you can see that you have, doing just an orbiter on the surface, you are limited by the orbiter being in sight of the lander to actually do the communications. And this doesn't matter, you know, you'd have to go quite a ways away uh, from the surface to, to get an orbiter that would be available to a lander or to anything on the surface um, um, for an extended period of time. The cost of this mission, uh, the uh, rules said they needed 50% reserve. This came out around 3.7 uh, billion, which is sort of in the medium range for flagships. The mass was uh, 9,584 uh, uh, kilograms. And you can see the, the timeline where pre-phase A would start in the next few years and uh, launch would be in 2031. And the deployment, you can see these, the schedule for these things here. So very typical of a, of a flagship mission um, schedule. Uh, as to risks and uh, technology readiness level, uh, the highest risks, as I've said, are the landing and the landing terrain, relative navigation and hazard avoidance systems. We know we can do it, it's, um, but the, the technology needs to be uh, changed from that of Mars to, uh, to Venus. Um, the landing pressure, land to pressure vessel complexity is one we, was, we struggled with. It's very, very tight, as you could see, uh, to keep a smallish uh, pressure vessel. It's quite tight. And of course, the mission complexity, because you've got multiple platforms, uh, we felt that that was uh, you know, a risk that we had to identify. Um, we want to make sure that uh, NASA it continues to fund, uh, that we get funding. There's not even funding right now for these variable altitude balloons, although JPL has worked extensively in this area for the last uh, decade. And uh, we need to qualify all the instruments and sample acquisition handling for these pressures uh, and temperatures. Um, and you can look at the technology development plan. Uh, so there is a plan in the, um, 
in the final report, and I've got that listed on the last chart. So as I said, there's, this is actually complementary to other Venus missions that have been proposed right now. Uh, Veritas is a, is a JPL mission actually that's been proposed uh, for discovery. Um, that actually is um, a very good SAR mission, high resolution SAR, and that would be really wonderful for, for this mission. We could descope uh, the, the near infrared uh, uh, emissivity uh, instrument and uh, possibly change the, uh, reduce the, the, the amount of radar that was needed uh, on, the, on the surface. Uh, da Vinci is, um, is a Jim Garvin uh, PI from God Earth, um, is, is a descent probe. And what that would done, we wouldn't descope anything for that because you need to land, uh, but it would give us a second position, a second place on Venus to get information about the atmosphere. And that would be huge. Um, it turns out if you look at the Venus data right now, even though this seems like there's been lots of missions, uh, a lot of the data, uh, especially from the older uh, Russian, there's maybe one point or two points. And so we are inferring quite a bit from that. Envision, if it was going to go to uh, Venus at the same, if it won the competition would be at Venus about the same time. And that would be wonderful because we might be able to completely de-scope de the, uh, uh, the radar and the, v and the near IR emissivity measurements. In fact, it could be a joint mission if, at that point. And with the Russians, the Venera D lander will visit the planes. Okay, so the Venus flagship mission concepts would have a lot of firsts. And uh, the first um, mission to trace uh, volatile inventory all the way through the system, the Venus system, uh, looking at the phase, the movement, the reservoirs and loss over the Venus history. Uh, it was, um, it could do a lot of things over a lot of, of, uh, of years. And so I think it would be something that if we could actually do right now, it would be a, a really interesting uh, mission. And the Decadal Survey is really looking at this. They're trying to look at also in the Decadal Survey, they're also trying to look at um, trying to do a New Frontiers cost um, aerobot mission to see if they can put a, a standoff orbiter uh, to um, monitor the uh, aerobots and communicate with the aerobots. The way that the Russians did the aerobots, for example, was to use ground-based monitoring and ground-based um, uh, efforts to get the, the data back. So uh, we'd like not to have to rely only on that. So Venus touches its all, uh, understanding uh, how we do these fundamental uh, new missions is really key. And I think besides coming up with a, a mission design, which is what we did, it also shows uh, points up the issues that come up as we look at these different um, scenarios. And so this was extremely useful for lots of different reasons. And one of the things that we recommended was that NASA Institute of Funded Coherent Venus program, very much like a Mars program, uh, where you'd get the scientific research, the technology developments, and then finally we would do a, a Venus flagship mission. 
So thank you. And uh, there's for more information, you can look at the website. Uh, the report, uh, I think it's a couple of hundred pages, is in um, is on the uh, NASA Science website. And feel free to uh, ask questions, or um, you can email if, me if you need more information. Let's see if I can see the the chat now. I'm not sure I can. Ah, yes, I can. Um, Okay, so Mitch was describing to the panelists and attendees that the Discovery Mission Program was a NASA mid-sized competed mission. The flagship is larger than, uh, actually it's 2 billion, uh, and it's not usually competed, it's usually assigned. And the New Frontier Program is around a billion. These days, it's a little more than 950 million, um, and likely to get up to a billion. So um, if you're not familiar with that. So any questions from any of the audience? First of all, Pat, a really great talk. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think there's a question Q&A box from Victor. Yeah. yeah, I think Venus is a much better, so this is from Victor. I think Venus is a much better place to go. In fact, better than Mars, but we're standing in the heat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Victor. Yes, thanks for the presentation. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's very interesting and it's, it's kind of odd that we haven't had Venus missions over the last uh, decade or so. Um, we've really kind of missed out on, on that. Um, and and I, I think NASA wants to fix that now. I'm hoping NASA wants to yeah. fix that now. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I thought Venus would, be a, would have been a much better target. Uh, because it's that much more related to Earth as far as its structure goes, you know, its uh, geological makeup. Yeah, uh, it, it is, uh, and and, and the con the concern too is is that is um, is it you know is this where Earth is going to end up? Is it going to end up a, a Venus uh, as we go down? Uh, you know, global climate change is is it going to end up eventually in in the same spot and. And that's something that we really need to know. Yeah, but do, is that considering, uh, is that because of a change of orbit or because the global warming the eventually will heat the, the, the existing Earth orbit around the sun to a temperature that's uh, equivalent or uh, reaching toward Venus's uh, atmospheric temperature? No, it, it probably started off about the same as Earth. Um, they don't, we don't know why the, uh, why it became so hot and why it lost its atmosphere. I mean, it lost its water vapor. We don't know why, and that's one of that's exactly what we're going to try and look at with the, a Venus flagship mission, is yes, to try and understand why Venus did what it did. Yes, I've wondered, you know, the atmosphere. I was thinking, I'm just thinking in logical terms. Um, Venus is closer to the sun, so it may have just evaporated and boiled off and lost its atmosphere. No, not, not really. There is another difference between Earth, though, is that it doesn't have a magnetic field, an intrinsic magnetic field, and that could have something to do with it, too. But we just don't know. That's, there are a lot of questions that we have about Venus right now that need to get answered. So you're saying it's far enough away from the sun to not, for the sun's mm -hmm. tip not to affect it as far as uh, uh, being able to be, have, oh, having a temperature that's constant and stable enough for life to exist. Mm -hmm. I know it. 
it's not that bad. So, yeah. Okay, the distance doesn't Oops. make much difference then. No, and that's why we need to understand this all a little better because we, we, we really don't understand the differences. So, oh, so that's the internal temperature. I thought maybe it was the heat. It was kept that way. Well, I guess maybe kept that way because of distance, but I thought it was because of the distance from the sun, this temperature is maintained. No, no. It, it, it may, may have been a little warmer, but nobody really thinks that that's a role. It, it's more to do with why did it change in terms of um, people just don't know. But so it, it's it just not be... to do with being close to the sun. It's not that much closer. I mean, it's, it's right at the edge of the habitability zone. I see. So all things stay the same. And uh, it would it at the minimum been like a, like a little warmer than this earth, mm -hmm. but, but uh, bearable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I see Randall had a question. Uh, Randall, what technology electronics are you planning to use for the lander? Uh, yeah, uncooled. Um, uh, the, that's the limit on the seven hours uh, is that we'll be using uh, regular electronics, just, you know, space qualified electronics. And um, once you get to around 60 centigrade, right, you'll start to, to, to fade. So that's the life limiting um, uh, issue on, on that. So the thermal is, is huge right now. We're, we've got a lot of people working thermal issues and novel thermal ways of handling that uh, high temperature to keep that uh, to keep the technologies, uh, the, the electronics cool enough so we can get even more hours out of it. People think they can probably try and get 24 hours out of it. But again, you have to worry about the communication at that point. So, and again, you'd have to have the, the right orbit for things like the small sats and the orbiter. Uh, so see, Erin asked, you mentioned the dynamics of entry are very challenging. What are the max Gs we expect? Uh, we uh, are limited, we, we gave Ames and Lang, we gave Ames the 50G requirement and they met it. So we could do 50Gs. Uh, the silicon, or see Randall asked about silicon carbon semiconductors. Yes, that's in fact the electronics in the LISI, which is the long lived lander, a silicon carbide. Um, the, so they've managed to do some electronics, but what we don't have enough, and they, they've got some, um, Sensors. So there are sensors that um, the Makel company has designed to monitor gases there again, silicon carbide. So the problem we have is right now there's no really good comm system that we can get with silicon carbide. The UHF they think they can get, but anything different from that right now is pretty tough. Uh, I think Kyle, Mr. Sweeney, um, I have a question. Kyle? Yes, um, my question is basically as far as like the whole mission sounds great, but as far as like what plans, like what do you think is going to be planned for once this mission is completed and successful? Uh, this is a study so that we could inform the decadal survey. The decadal survey panels and the committee um, 
will be looking at all of the missions. And, you know, if this gets to be a priority, um, then we have a chance. So, you know, we have a chance of actually implementing it. Um, so we'll see. We just got to wait to see um, if we get to be prioritized. Uh, you know, this next decade is the decade of the Mars sample return, right? It's going into phase A as, was it, two weeks ago? So the sample return, all, and that's why we picked, um, that's why we picked uh, a launch date of um, 2031, because we said, aha, if we do anything sooner, we're not going to get anything. So we may as well do, we'll do something that we know we can actually get a, a chance of doing. So this mission is very um, popular with the scientists because they understand the issues. And there's a couple of other, you know, Ocean Worlds is a very uh, popular um, target for a lot of missions and ice giants. So we'll have to see what the Decadal Survey says. Okay, thank you. So Erin asked about the Venus lack of a moon. Um, may have something to do with these conditions. I, I'm not sure it has something to do with these conditions. I, I don't understand this, to be frank. Um, I don't really understand uh, the implications. It's an observation that's been made is why doesn't Venus have uh, not have a moon? And nobody knows the answer to that question. Um, but it's an observation that's been made that that, you know, because it did, did it have anything to do with the way that Venus progressed and um, evolved? Let's see, am I missing any more? Oh yeah, there's more here, okay. Uh, Venus was, <laughs> so the um, Victor asked, do we believe Venus was captured by the sun or produced by it? Um, so the solar system was, uh, Venus was formed as part of the solar system, the same time Earth was formed, but make, you know, all of the, the, the planets were formed around the same time. And um, so it's, it's solar, it's the accretion of the uh, material to form planets um, that, you know, billions of years ago. Okay, Randall says, if the sun were to cool, would this generate a sufficient internal thermal gradient to generate a magnetic field? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I do not think so. I don't think that's the reason there's no magnetic field. I think there just simply isn't enough magnetic material in the core. Let's see. Erin. Do the small sats have their own propulsion system? Yes, um, they do. They're, it's electric propulsion. And um, that turned out to be quite critical. Does the launch vehicle place them in their, into that orbital transit and the main orbiter modifies its transit for the flyby? So they go to Venus under their own steam. They, uh, they, they use their own propulsion to get and to put themselves into the correct orbit. Um, the launch, yeah, the launch vehicle gets them, you know, out to uh, planetary. So they just have to go from there. Um, the main orbiter modifies its transits for the flyby. Um, 
not really the by the oh the flyby the flyby venus yeah that's part of the trajectory design the mission design it was designed that way um so it was designed to go around venus one time so that it could deliver after the after the the small sats got there um I pass, while we're waiting for more questions actually related to what Aaron asked, what is the um, design lifetime for the orbiter and the two small sets? Are they designed to last for a couple of years? Yeah, so um, that's an interesting question. Um, the orbiter is like any other orbiter that we've, you know, we developed. So we say there's a lifetime of, you know, X number of years, 10 years, eight years, whatever, but it there's no reason it can't go longer. So that orbiter could have a long lifetime the same way MRO does around Mars, right? Or, um, you know, some of the Mars mission, Odyssey's been there for how many years, right? <laughs> long time. So there's no reason, there's no real reason that the orbiter couldn't be there for a long, long time. Um, the small sats, you know, as the technology is improving for the small sats. In fact, we did not go into the detailed study of small sats. And one of the reasons we didn't do that was because the technology is changing so quickly that we felt by a decade from now, or even seven, five, six, seven years from now, um, there would be such an advance in a lot of these areas. So what we did was we studied the small sat with respect to what we needed to know about them the communication system, the propulsion system, you know, the stuff that we actually needed to know. But the, um, you know, 10 years from now, they could be lasting as long as any other orbiter. Hello, can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, uh-huh. Yes, I was wondering, <clears throat> uh, I don't, you might have mentioned it already, but what is it, uh, the, the, well, I have two questions. The temperature on the surface of uh, Venus, what, what was it that you mentioned? What did you say it was? It's 450 centigrade. 450. Mm -hmm. Also, has there been a study between what the, uh, between Mercury and Venus? Because, uh, you know, Mercury is closer. I was just wondering, is Mercury, Mercury has a magnetic field, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's what answers my question then. So I'm just trying to differentiate between the difference between Earth uh, Venus and Mars. Uh, uh -huh. and, and so Messenger, uh, Messenger was a mission that went to Mercury, and mm -hmm. Beppe Colombo is on its way there now. That's an ESA mission. So Messenger was a um, was a, a U.S. Uh, NASA mission. Um, so they studied. So Messenger has studied Mercury extensively, and in fact, one of the um, other studies for the Decadal Survey was uh, a Mercury lander, and that's a tough mission. Um, they, they think they actually can last on the surface about. Uh, well, well, um, to one more question I'm going to ask: the materials they are using for these uh, sats and, and probes and uh, and, and uh, landers, the rovers. What type of metal are we looking at? Uh, which standard is temperature for that? Usually, usually uh, titanium. Titanium. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Yeah. It must be a lot of insulate. I mean, it must be really uh, insulated. Yeah. So the thermal system is quite um, is quite elaborate, and we used um, um, oh, I've got a blank. Um, 
thermal protection material inside. Uh, oh, I've got a blank on the, in the, on the phrase, but uh, we used uh, a lot of phase change material. Okay, so there to, uh, Yeah, and so that's why you get that. Right now, the phase change material can last about seven hours on the surface. Uh, so the whole mission on the surface was like eight. But what, what people are doing is, is thinking of novel ways to improve the thermal conditions. And so okay. we're looking at, you know, as I said, 24 hours. Um, now the LISI will last after currently is scheduled to last after. So they're, uh, they will last much, you know, they'd last two or three months. Uh, this, that's the, the claim right now. So we'll find out, but the electronics goes after the heat rises. And so the communication gets to be an issue. Let's see, any other questions? I see Erin. So the, um, the Aerobot, what power source does it have? Um, it's uh, battery operated. So it's got lots of batteries uh, right now. Um, the, the Aerobot doesn't have a fan. The Lander has the fan um, for, for doing the maneuvers right at the end, but the uh, Aerobot does not. It has... Um, it has, uh, it just, it goes with the wind. It goes with the flow. Okay, actually the video you showed, uh, uh -huh. you know, there's the people says make oh, a video. Oh, the pump, yeah, sorry. Go the ahead. video that's uh, showing the mission, that's uh, it's a, it's very nice. Uh, the music was pretty good too. Oh, you know what? I wondered if you could hear, I, I set it for that, but my system said, it needed me to reboot Zoom before it took effect. So I was not quite sure you'd hear the music. Yeah, yeah because a few, many years ago, I, I uh, saw, uh, you know, there was a kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of uh, uh, a video, it's from NASA, but I'm not so sure it's JPL. It has very nice music too. It was, uh, the music was using the, uh, you know, the French uh, uh, composer, Saint-Saëns, uh, uh -huh. and the, the organ con con concerto. It was very good, very fitting for, for the Voyagers. And this yeah. one is pretty good too. I, this was honestly, this was a weekend job, not job. The guy likes to do these things. Wow. Drew Jones uh, at Goddard, he did a great job. And he I did see. the whole thing. He did the music, he did everything. He just, one Monday morning, we came back and here was all this stuff done. It was like, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, it is. It's, uh... I think Erin posed something a few minutes. Yeah, she did about the pump. Uh, um, let's, I'm going to flip, see if I can flip back to that chart that you're referring to. I know the one you're talking about. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, I'm going to flip here. If this doesn't bother you too much. Yeah, so this is the one you, you're uh, looking at, at how this all happened, right? So uh, the, the pumping and the venting system, there's a transfer of gas. And, and the only, um, I'm not positive about how all this works, but the only battery, it's only battery operated. So there's only um, primary batteries and rechargeable batteries. And there's, so there's solar cells, right? To recharge the batteries. So it, in that respect, it's solar, right? But the, and, and you could see that on the, um, on the 
these are all solar cells around here. And it turns out because, um, because of the atmosphere, there's so much scattering of light on the upper atmosphere and in the clouds even, even though you can't see them from here or you couldn't see them from outside the, the orbit, um, there's so much scattering you can put um, solar cells all the way around and you get light all the way around because there's so much scattering. Does that answer your question, Erin? Erin, actually you can unmute yourself to speak if you want. Oh, oh, anyway. Yes, thank you. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Erin is actually my wife. Uh, this is oh. her Zoom session. Oh. So, um, but yes, thank you for that for that answer. It, it seems similar to like a ballonet on an air on a, a blimp. Yeah, I assume that's the same kind of the same principles so. at work. Yeah, we used to only look at uh, you know we've looked at uh, uh, fixed altitude balloons for a long time when we were looking at uh, super pressure balloons, and we've been looking at things for for some years. Uh, but in, in recently now, we've, we've been looking much more at these variable altitude balloons because it gives you a lot of more flexibility. Uh, they are a little more complicated. We are going to, um, to this year, I think we're going to try and look at, at, at what the pump and venting system really will, will be comprised of. But it's really sort of more engineering than it is technology development. Sure. Yeah, that. That makes sense. I, I'm an engineer at, at Lockheed Martin and I worked on yeah. a high altitude blimp project yeah. Yeah. and the ballonet and all of that stuff. The altitude variation is was a, a very difficult problem to, to solve and, and I can see the complexity of this definitely. Yeah, well, it turns out that people are flying these now quite routinely and so on earth. And so we know that it's quite doable. We just oh yeah, that helps, sure, I'm sure. Right, we just have to make sure that it's uh, doable for uh, for Venus conditions. And there's really nothing to make it, um, because it won't be inflated with, um, with any uh, sulfuric acid. So it, it, should be, it should be fine. I don't think we're terribly concerned about the aerobots and the balloon, but we still need to qualify them for, for Venus. Okay, yeah, that's, that's why I asked about the, the power um, the power yeah. source for the pump, because I know that you know pumping is going to take more more energy than you'd like, of course. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So somebody asked, Randall asked, how corrosive is the aerobot environment? Um, it's not as it sounds bad to say you're going to have droplets of sulfuric acid, but they're small droplets, and as long as you, you know, for a sixty day mission, you're probably just fine. But you would want to count on that, right? You you want to make sure that you're going to keep keep being fine. So uh, we'll take the precautions. That's something we probably need to understand a bit better. The Venus chambers that we have right now, there's one in Glen that's got Venus surface. I'm not sure they can look at the cloud, um, the cloud conditions. Um, that's a very difficult thing to do, um, but we'll be, you know, to qualify it, we certainly will have to look at all those things. Yeah, but, but one thing uh, is, uh, you mentioned this uh, uh, exoplanet thing, you know, uh, that's very interesting because the false spin discovery was said to be related to the uh, exoplanet uh, um, uh, project because they were calibrating 
some exoplanet study, and uh, they by chance discovered the phosphine uh, Venus. Right. And uh, that actually triggered the, uh, um, you know, NASA's response, you know, Mr. Brandenstein saying it will kind of shift the priority in NASA, you know, more to the- Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. that's great, yeah. And uh, the other, you know, I just happened to notice that in your bio mentioned you also uh, work on the outer planet. So do you think that uh, maybe, as you said, in 10 years or something that uh, there will be more uh, mission focused to Neptune, Uranus, Mercury, and yeah. Venus? Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Mercury, we, we just did Messenger. I, I'd be a little surprised, but that's just my own bias. Um, but definitely uh, Ocean Worlds, um, you know, whether it's Enceladus or uh, Europa, um, whether it's uh, ice giants, Neptune, Uranus, uh, or Venus, uh, it's, it's all going to play, they're going to play against each other. And what's happening is, you know, slowly um, people are doing bits and pieces of these things. So you could think of doing, instead of one single flagship mission, you could think of doing, you know, the pieces. <laughs> Although it's kind of expensive, we looked at that um, <clears throat> quite, um, let's see, over the Christmas holidays, <laughs> we actually looked at, well, what, you know, could, could we put this into new frontier buckets? And the answer was, it's pretty difficult to do that um, because the lander is more than, the lander itself is like more than a new frontiers, um, 1.2 billion-ish plus um, uh, mission. The Aerobot is a possibility and they're looking at that now, as I said, Goddard and, and JPL are looking at that now. Um, uh, it, it'll, it'll be tight, let's put it that way. Um, the small sets can do, could go and do their thing anyways, uh, with or without anything else. So you could look at the escape. Um, so you could do some of this independently from a big mission. The best way to do it, though, is to to look, um, you know, at this at Venus as a system and get everything from the surface and and you know subsurface all the way through to the escape uh, species. You're absolutely right. Actually, two years ago, we have the PI for the messenger mission, the Professor Solomon, Sean uh -huh. Solomon. Yeah. yeah, Sean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, he was talking. Then he at the end, he mentioned about the uh, the lander, maybe, you know, that he kind of <laughs> discussed with you, you know. It's kind of, yeah. actually, we got very good response from that. The people are very excited. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting mission. Um, right now, <clears throat> they need a month of autonomous um, operations. And that's tough. Um, the Venus mission is tough in that it's got eight hours of autonomous on yeah. the for the land. It's eight hours autonomy, and of course the balloon and the aerobot would have to be autonomous. So those uh, those we need advances in autonomy to um, to really um, make these missions not so much viable as um, more more useful because you need to, to have that autonomy. They really need to be there. The autonomy needs to be there. Yeah, I think this, like the things like AI machine learning, those things are very dramatic. I think someday it will be ready. Yeah. Actually, when you, yeah, actually, sorry, when you mentioned, actually initially I, I was about to ask about this name, the fracture, where the name came from is because the, 
Ah, uh, so the flagship is just a, a category of missions. Oh, um, okay, okay. As Mitch posted, it's flagship new frontiers and discovery. Okay, okay. And it's just the dollar amount. Um, and flagships are usually 2 billion plus, uh, roughly. I and, see. Um, you know, JWST is a flagship, right? Ah, um, I see. Mars Perseverance is a flagship. Okay, okay, okay. Curiosity is a flagship. Uh, it's just the size of the mission and the cost, the complexity. It, they run a little differently too. Um, so for the PI-led missions, which are the new frontiers and the discovery, um, they are run very differently in that the PI runs the mission and they're responsible for the mission. For a flagship mission, uh, the center is responsible. So it would be a Goddard or a JPL or a APL or a, you know, whoever. Those, it's the center that's responsible. So this, the way that the mission is run is very different. Uh, you, don't, you have a science team, but it's led by a project scientist, not a PI. And, and it's, it's a completely different structure for the flagship missions. Yeah, uh, the reason I meant because I have to confess, confess actually initially when I first looked, uh, see you with this, I somehow maybe it's the picture because you know, North of Roman has the VAMP uh, proposal. Yeah. And uh, you see on their website, they post some kind of uh, airship. So initially I thought hey, maybe this is something kind of uh, airship type. Well, no, I was totally wrong, you know, completely wrong. But so how do you think, <laughs> you know, because the, the, how do you think that the, their VAMP uh, proposal somehow fit into your uh, design or is completely so, separate? So there was a study a while ago. There was a study a while ago that um, that looked at uh, all the different mission uh, concepts for an aerial vehicle. Um, and um, the one that came out best for the science and the feasibility uh, of orbiting and getting into orbit uh, is, um, is this variable altitude balloon. And that study was done about two or three years ago. So it fed into the studies, but uh, so far has not um, risen to the top in terms of choice for uh, a viable mission. Yeah, I, I think this uh, uh, study and the proposed mission you propose is very exciting, but it's a little bit more, I have to say this a little bit more, I think it's in a good way, but it's a little bit more aggressive because you know, you saw that it's, it's complete and the whole, but do you think the Russian will be happy about this? Because they claim Venus is the Russian planet. <laughs> so we work with the Russians. So oh, there's okay. a joint Russian team. That's the Venera D team. It's a joint mission study. Um, we've been at it five years. Yeah, they're kind of in a hiatus right now. Um, I was there a year and a half ago, two years ago, someplace around there in Moscow. And um, and talking to the Russians about, you know, venerity and the funding in Russia. Uh, it's a funding issue in Russia. Um, and But we're happy to... Uh, you know, NASA is very happy to uh, to do what we can to help them move along, and we have been. Uh, the joint study is evidence of that. So, uh, you mentioned your study. You, I think you. I also saw the Verona D. I think that's uh, that's Verona D. Yeah. yeah, that's the joint uh, NASA uh, Russia. I see, uh, I see. mission. This and is it so would go, Yeah, it would go to a plane. It would go to the planes. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is so exciting. Yeah. Sorry to take that because you know, uh, kind of try to fit in. But personally, I'm also very have been very excited about this. But I think the last, I think Aaron posed uh, some. Yeah, questions. Aaron's got a couple of questions. So eight hours of autonomy on the land for what reason? Uh, it's simply thermal. Um, no other reason. Uh, you could. Um, we. I, I'm not sure the small sites will come back around again. I mean, I it. We'd have to play around with with the orbital dynamics and the orbital uh, efforts with the small sites and the land and the orbiter. No, with the small sites and the orbiter. Uh, but the main reason was thermal. It just we we just don't have the phase change material or the thermal design to last longer than eight hours right now. That was, I mean, when we started, God had said, oh, we'll never do eight hours. And uh, I have to say, JPL was, we, I knew we could, because we've had some concepts of JPL that are pretty far along that we could do the thermal. So I was pushing them to, to, to look at long, and they, they came up with um, eight hours then. Um, so that's really the only, um, that's the only reason for the uh, lifetime of the lander. Um, yeah, eight hours is most of the primary mission for the lander. Yeah, it's one hour in descent and seven hours on the surface. Okay, uh, everyone, that's, uh, any more questions? This is a great opportunity to meet the uh, person, uh, uh, leader behind uh, the, the scene for this uh, great mission. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Oh, I think someone posted another one. Aaron, oh, just. Oh, just you're welcome, saying. Aaron. I'm not, sorry. Aaron's husband, you're welcome. Has husband, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, truly amazing. We, we can meet, uh, meet, meet you, you know, uh, uh, this uh, truly our great pleasure and honor. So. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, if there's no more question, um, do you want to say something as a, Closing remark. No, I just hope people get excited about Venus. I'm so uh, excited, yeah, and especially, it's, it's, yeah, it's with you. It's really yeah. timely to get excited about exactly. Venus. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've, um, you know, we're we're doing everything we can at JPL. I know God is interested. So, uh, and headquarters is interested too. I think. Yeah. In fact, the planetary science division director, um, Laurie Glees. Uh, used to be the PI of the Da Vinci um, proposal. Uh, so she's had to recuse herself from uh, the um, evaluations because she didn't want to get in the middle of that problem. <laughs> but she's a big supporter. And I think she's um, helped um, Thomas understand the reasons for that. Thomas Zabrokin, who's the SMD chair, uh, SMD AA. Yeah, so I hope we get, uh, I'd like to see a program. I, I think we all would. Um, so we'll have to see if that comes out of the decadal survey. Yeah, exactly. And what AIWA can do is, you know, we keep doing event, events and the uh, webinar or real person event with you uh, and uh, your colleagues and uh, get uh, uh, the community, aerospace community, uh, you know, and also the general public get them excited and well-informed, you know, that what mm -hmm. AIWA could do. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just, really good. Yeah, yeah. this uh, definitely will continue. This is so exciting. You know, people are asking, you know, this, uh, why we ignore our nearest neighbor. And, uh, you know, since the Voyager, there's so many years, just uh, 
Uranus and Neptune, they're completely ignored. And we, we could go to Pluto, but you know, just ignore those, just, just a pity, you know, it's time. Yeah, yeah it is time. And I yeah. think that people are re realizing that. The, the difficulty is, if you actually think about it though, is that we train planetary scientists on previous missions. And so by having so many Mars missions, we've got a huge um, amount of Mars planetary scientists. And what happened with, with the, the US, because we did not have Venus missions, we had to build back up the Venus community. And so we've spent the last, in fact, Laurie Glaze and I were chair and vice chair of um, the Vexag, um, the assessment group. And we spent a lot of time trying to build up the community uh, back to a point that it was vocal enough to push for Venus missions. Yeah, and, this and, is a great point. Yeah. Yeah, you have it's 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 a sociological effect as well. Yeah, which is very important for space yeah. exploration. Yeah, right. I think I think things start to shift you know, like this. It's a very important effort, and I think this uh, same thing for MMRTG. I think the radioactive material used to be supplied by the Russian, and then now I think the uh, yeah US, we make uh, our own plutonium now, right? Now. and also yeah, if you was, see this. That was a big push from the outer planet community to get that going. And oh, uh, yeah, so you were behind we, that. I see. Yeah, when I was on, I was on that assessment group for like a decade, and we thank you, thank pushed you. like ah. crazy to get the that plutonium going again. And it is now. It's it's they're doing about one. They they're doing. I think it's about a kilogram a year now. But if they can upscale it now, because we had to buy NASA actually paid for their equipment upgrades and putting new things new new uh, instruments and they had to they had to re redo things and we had to pay for it so nasa paid for it and and they're at the point now that they've got the line working correctly and we can produce plutonium and yeah it's amazing you know we, we meet the person behind and uh, you, you are doing all the right things thank you well. really thank you thank you so much you know just uh, we all do a little bit, right? <laughs> Thank you. Very important. Small step, a huge yep. step for mankind. Yep, 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 yep. We do that. Yeah, okay. Uh, so let's see. Uh, hesitate. Actually, there are a lot of inches. I'm so excited, but you see, we don't want to also keep you uh, here all the time, the whole day. Uh, so if there's no more questions, let's see. No, okay. So if that is... Um, well, okay, so really thank you so much. And uh, please, please stay in touch because we really want you to come back and uh, anytime you like to talk about whatever you want uh, and let us know the more new progresses or whatever uh, you've been doing. Thank you much. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. It. Appreciate thank you. the invitation. Thank, thank you. you. Anytime. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mitch, too. Oh, you're very welcome. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, okay, thank you very much for everyone for attending today's.